This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Chief Justice Earl Warren led the Supreme Court from 1953 until 1969. The Warren Court was the Supreme Court of landmark decisions like Brown v. Board of Education, Gideon v. Wainwright, and Miranda v. Arizona, just to name a few. Echoes of the underpinnings of those decisions can be heard in Warren's eulogy for President John F. Kennedy. If we truly love justice and mercy, if we fervently want to make this nation better for those who are to follow us, we can at least abjure the hatred that consumes people, the false accusations that divide us, and the bitterness that begets violence. Joining me are professors Jeffrey Stone and David Strauss of the University of Chicago Law School. They're the authors of the new book, Democracy and Equality, the Enduring Constitutional Vision of the Warren Court. David, explain the significance of the court in law and in history. I think it is significant in two ways. One is that it tackled a real problem that's been at the heart of American life from the beginning. That's the problem of race discrimination and racial subordination of African Americans. And the Warren Court tackled that problem when the other branches of government were not willing to. And however much progress it made, it made progress. And that is a permanent part of its legacy. And no other court in our history tackled that problem and made progress on it the way the Warren Court did. That's one thing I'd say. The other is really just a kind of more general version of that which is the Warren Court saw as its mission to look out for the people who are not getting a fair shake in society. And it started with African-Americans in the Jim Crow South, but the Warren Court's view was a more universal one and extended to, for example, criminal defendants, political dissidents, religious minorities, and eventually, near the end of its time, a little bit, poor people. And it thought that's what the Supreme Court should be doing. It should be sticking up for the people who are not getting a fair shake elsewhere. Jeff, do you want to add to that? I guess I would add that the Warren Court also gave, over time, a sense of why we need judicial review, why we need courts to enforce the Constitution. And that was something the framers themselves understood. It was basically because we love democracy, but we know democracy is flawed. And we know sometimes it can be flawed in serious ways. Two of the ways in which it's most obvious that democracy will not work the way in which one might hope it does is first in its treatment of people who are seen as the other, whether they be African-Americans or women or gays or any group at any moment in time is seen as an outsider, that majorities will tend not to give them a fair shake. And you need courts with life tenure to step in in those circumstances and ensure that the government, in fact, acts properly. And the other has to do with the democracy part of it, in the sense that one of the other temptations that majorities will have is to manipulate the political process in order to retain their power. And they will pass laws about poll taxes and literacy tests and gerrymandering and so on that are designed to undermine the basic principles of democracy in order to ensure that they remain in power. And there, too, one needs courts with judges with life tenure to be able to step in and say, no, we have a deeper commitment than that. And there are some times when majorities can't do what they want. Those two factors, the protection of those who are vulnerable and the protection of democracy in the political sense, 
were two of the central features of the Warren Court. And I think they were completely right. And those decisions have stood the test of time. We now have a chief justice who thinks the court should remain above the political fray, who says justices should just call balls and strikes. Jeff, how does that contrast with Chief Justice Earl Warren's view? Well, I I think it doesn't mean anything, to be perfectly honest. It's utterly hypocritical. The reality is that the major cases the Supreme Court has, the ones that are most important, most controversial, aren't about balls and strikes. They are about complex, difficult, challenging issues. So the notion of calling balls and strikes really has very little meaning. I mean, if you're talking about a case like Brown v. Board of Education or a case like Citizens United, there is no balls and strikes there. Those are very hard questions that require serious judgment. And beyond that, courts and justices do need a principled approach to the exercise of their very large power that they're given under the Constitution. And to pretend that all you're doing is calling balls and strikes is simply to purport to hide the reality of the judgments that you're making. David, the Warren Court has been criticized as being too activist and changing the law rather than following it, imposing its own vision on society. How do you answer those criticisms? I'd answer them in two ways. First of all, the Warren Court was in its bones, deeply democratic. And here's what I mean by that. Some of the most important decisions of the Warren Court were decisions that actually expanded democracy and made it healthier, like the one-person, one-vote decisions. And we quote in the book from an interview Earl Warren gave late in his career, where he said, you know, if we had been able to decide the one-person, one-vote decisions earlier, Brown against Board of Education would have been unnecessary because the democratic process would have solved the problem. Now, I think that's a little bit naive, but it reflected the attitude that pervaded the Warren Court, which is our primary commitment is to democracy, and we are only going to step in where we think there is some malfunction in democracy, and then we'll just try to fix the malfunction. Second thing I'd say is if you look at these critics of the Warren Court, including their successors on some later Supreme Courts, and you look at the decisions they've actually overruled, you would be hard-pressed to find any Warren Court decisions that later courts overruled, with one exception. The exception is not Brown, which, of course, has become sacrosanct. They didn't overrule that. They didn't overrule Miranda, one of the then most notorious criminal justice decisions. They didn't overrule the school prayer decisions. What they overruled was a series of Warren Court decisions that really paved the way for Congress to tackle some of the nation's big problems. The Warren Court was very committed to the idea that the big problems in the country race discrimination, the state of the economy, the extent to which the economy should be regulated, those are for Congress, and we, the Supreme Court, are going to get out of the way. And if you look at the changes that later courts have made, that's where they made changes, by doing things like striking down portions of the Affordable Care Act, striking down portions of the Voting Rights Act. It was really the Democratic side of the Warren Court that's come under attack by later courts. Can I just interrupt? By Democratic, David means Democratic with a small d, not Democratic as a political party. Yes, absolutely. I hope that was clear. Jeff, can you describe how the Warren Court evolved and particularly how the Chief Justice evolved? Well, I think Earl Warren played a critical role in the evolution of the Warren Court. You know, one of the most, as David noted, one of the most, perhaps the most important decision the Warren Court made was in Brown versus Board of Education. And when the Supreme Court first considered that case, 
1952-53, the justices were very much divided about what the right outcome was. And there was a reasonably good probability that if they had decided the case then, that they would have decided that separate but equal was constitutional and racial segregation was constitutional. But Chief Justice Vinson died, and Earl Warren was appointed by President Eisenhower to replace him. And Warren was the one who then led the discussion inside the court that wound up producing a unanimous decision in Brown v. Board of Education. And I think that Warren himself learned from his own experiences in life. I mean, during the Japanese internment during World War II, Warren, as Attorney General of the state of California, supported that. And later in his life, he came to regret that. And I think he became aware of the fact that it's possible to make mistakes, and it's important to, to think hard about things. And I think he brought that to the court in a very specific way. And the court did evolve over time. It evolved in part because the justices' own views changed over time as they worked with one another and thought these issues through. Partly it changed uh, because of the makeup of the court, which gradually changed. So by the end of the Warren Court, there were justices who'd been appointed, like Thurgood Marshall and um, Arthur Goldberg, uh, Abe Fortas, um, who were more liberal than many of the justices who on the court in the beginning. So a number of factors came into play for the evolution of the Warren Court. Part of it was Warren's leadership. Part of it was the fact that the justices generally worked together very well to figure these things out. And third, it's also the case that over the course of the tenure of the Warren Court, that there were appointments by later presidents, including Lyndon Johnson, for example, that were more liberal than some of the justices originally on the court. You picked 12 cases, important decisions, monumental decisions, perhaps, of the Warren Court. Besides Brown v. Board of Education, which we've talked about, what case would you choose as the next most significant? Well, that's a very interesting question, because there were several that are candidates for that. I think I would probably say the one-person, one-vote decision. And here's, here's why that was significant. At the time that that case was decided, you had a situation in many states in the United States where rural areas had overwhelming power in the state legislatures. And the reason they had overwhelming power was that the district lines had been drawn at a time when these states were predominantly rural and the cities were small or or barely existed at all. And then over the course of the first half of the 20th century, the country became a lot more urban, but the district lines weren't redrawn. So a district that had one representative in 1900 would still have one in 19. 60, and that one district might be, you know, the city of Memphis, or it might be some county in a rural county in Tennessee that was rapidly depopulating. And that pattern was very common, and the result was that rural legislatures, rural legislators exerted uh, disproportionate power in their in their legislatures, and, and the disproportion was unbelievable. Sometimes you would have a district with tens of thousands, the number of people, with the same number of representatives as another a smaller district. And the Warren Court said you can't do that. One person, one vote. Districts of the same population should have the same representation in the state legislature. And the reason I guess I wanted to highlight that is there's a concern on the national scene today that our country is similarly skewed. The national legislature, Congress, which this, this piece is embedded in the Constitution. There's nothing you can do about it except amend the Constitution. There's a similar skew where power that once was fairly apportioned 
is now disproportionately disadvantaging urban areas and advantaging rural areas. And the Warren Court saw that's not healthy. That's not a healthy thing for a, a country committed to democratic ideals to do. And it, it did something about it. And at the time it did it, it was quite quite revolutionary and sparked a real backlash. Um, that died out pretty quickly because the underlying principle was so obviously appealing. But I guess of decisions, if you had to pick besides the race decisions, like Brown against the Board of Education, Loving against Virginia, which said there's a constitutional right to marry a person of a different race, apart from the race decisions, which I think are clearly the most important things the Warren Court did, it's kind of visionary commitment to what it means to be a government by the people, for the people, of the people. Uh, I think I would pick, I would pick that as, as its most important achievement. Jeffrey, your turn. I guess the, the change in the criminal justice system brought about by the Warren Court, um, the system we had before the Warren Court um, was one in which criminal defendants who could not afford to hire a lawyer themselves simply had no legal representation. Um, if police officers engaged in unconstitutional searches, they could use the evidence uh, in court against the individual whose rights were violated. Um, and individuals who were interrogated um, could be put in isolation, could be subjected to various degrees of physical um, uh, maybe torture, even in the worst cases, and their statements, except in the worst cases, could be used against them, even though there are provisions of the Constitution that give you a right to counsel, that give you a right not to incriminate yourself. And what the Warren Court did was to, give, was to breathe life into those guarantees. In Gideon v. Wainwright, it held that a criminal defendant who cannot afford legal counsel um, does not have to represent himself, but can has a constitutional right to have an appointed counsel to, to assist him. And um, in Miranda, the court held that if you're being interrogated by the police, uh, you have a right to be warned of, of your right to remain silent. And if you can't afford a right a, a lawyer, you have a right to have one appointed. Um, and in Mapfe, Ohio, the court said that evidence obtained in an unconstitutional search that violates the Fourth Amendment um, cannot be used um, in a criminal proceeding against the individual whose rights were violated. Those were fundamental transformations of the criminal justice process that made the justice process process um, more legitimate, more fair. Um, and even though there was lots of criticism of those decisions at the time on the ground that, oh, criminals are going to go free and this is going to lead to a huge increase in, in unlawful behavior and police officers are going to be uh, put in a position where they can't be effective. Over time, that all largely disappeared. And for the most part, the society, the police, and the courts have come to understand that these were all important innovations that protected fundamental constitutional rights that previously had been ignored. Now, the way the Supreme Court justices are chosen nowadays, you know, down partisan lines, Jeff, do you think that we will ever see a type of Warren court again? Well, one of the things that made the Warren Court interesting is that the justices on the Warren Court did not, in their ideological views, did not correlate with any particular party. Earl Warren was appointed by Dwight Eisenhower, a Republican. William Brennan was appointed by Eisenhower, a Republican. And at the same time, there were justices who were appointed by Democratic presidents, like Tom Clark and Felix Frankfurter, who were much more conservative. And so the court was not 
one that was identified in any credible way as partisan. They weren't Republican justices and Democratic justices whose views correlated with the views of the parties. Today, that's not the case. Today, we have nine justices, five appointed by Republican presidents, all of whom are very conservative and consistently vote in the ways that correlate with the Republican Party's values, and four who are appointed by Democratic presidents who tend to be more liberal in that respect. And that really undermines, I think, an important part of the integrity of the Supreme Court. And the idea of the court is to have individuals who are doing their best in good faith to give objective, fair-minded meaning through these ambiguous constitutional provisions, not colored by their partisan political views. Right now, that core understanding of the court has been undermined. And I do think it's a challenge to see whether we can get past this. It's not obvious to me we can. And finally, David, is the Warren court the last great court? I think it is the last court that had a clear vision for America and and the right kind of vision for America. And I think the court since then you know, there are some decisions they've had that I've, I think are right, some decisions I have that are not right. But I don't think any of them has had a coherent idea of what it is that the Supreme Court should be doing in American life. And certainly not the idea that the Warren Court had that the Supreme Court's business is to look out for people who aren't getting a fair shake elsewhere in, the, in, in our democracy. Thanks to both of you. That's Jeffrey Stone and David Strauss of the University of Chicago Law School. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show weeknights at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.